This is Stories of Strength by MuscleTech, personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength. Welcome back for another episode of Stories of Strength by MuscleTech, a podcast where we share personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength. I'm your host, Jade Cardiello, and today I'm speaking with adventurer, author, athlete, and activist Eric Weimer. He's the first person without eyesight to reach the summit of Mount Everest as well as complete the seven summits from around the world. In 2005, Eric co-founded the nonprofit No Barriers, an organization that helps people of diverse backgrounds and abilities develop a no-barrier mindset to attack challenges head-on, problem-solve, build winning teams, and serve others. He is here today to talk about his journey as a mountaineer, his time on the mountains, and some of the work he is doing to help people innovate their way through barriers. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Eric, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Now, we're going to jump right into it. When, at what age did you lose your sight? I went blind when I was about 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school. Actually, it was a week before my freshman year in high school. I was visiting my grandmother down in Florida. I lived in Connecticut at the time. And um, I pretty much went blind as a bat like that week. And then I remember not being able to take a step. And like I couldn't see to take a step. And my brother, I had to grab his arm to get home through the airport and everything. And then I started freshman year. Then next week. So not great timing being led into school as a freshman, uh, as a newly blinded person. How difficult was it knowing the eventuality versus what happened to some people that are suddenly blind? Do you think it was worse knowing that you were eventually going to be blind as opposed to just one day you became blind? Yeah, no, that's a good thing. I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like if you're going to get your finger chopped off, what's better for it to be slow and painful for many years? <laughs> Or just like all at once. I mean, you'd almost wish it'd be all at once. For me, it was uh, diagnosed at, you know, age four with this very rare eye disease. The doctor said there's no cure and I'd be blind by an early teenager. So as a kid, I didn't really conceptualize what that meant. So basically my strategy, which, you know, was a survival strategy was to deny it and ignore it and just go out and play with my friends and run around the woods and be idiots like kids are, <laughs> jump off cliffs into rivers and run into trees and crash my bike and uh, throw water balloons at each other and, you know, bottle rockets, shoot bottle rockets at each other. Do not recommend that <laughs> for anyone. But, you know, so for me, blindness was like this vague concept of like, you know, like I, I honestly, I kind of thought like, well, you know, everyone talks about it with such doom and gloom. It must be like, what dying feels like. Mm, that's interesting. You know, I've read in your book, No Barriers, where you speak about Terry Fox who ran 3,000 miles while having cancer. Yeah. Was that your early inspiration or was it something else? Oh, no, that was on a show called That's Incredible. And it wasn't my inspiration because I was really going through a hard time, you know, just barely able to see at that time. And then this show comes on. Uh, it was in the 80s. It was a really popular show. That's incredible. And uh, I remember they were featuring Terry and he was running across Canada. And it was my first experience where somebody did not react to challenge by curling up in a ball and protecting themselves, you know, like abundance to scarcity like that. Like Terry made 
his challenge into something bigger. You know, I realize you don't have to shrink and get smaller. You can get bigger and make that challenge into this powerful story where you impact the world and you build this beautiful legacy of, of your life. And so, yeah, no, it blew my, my mind that you could react in that way. Like, wait, you lose your leg. And then you decide to run across Canada thousands of miles, a marathon a day and raise a billion dollars for cancer research. Mm. I mean, he didn't get that much time on earth. I wish I could have met him. He didn't make the end of the run. He, cancer came back and killed him. But uh, wow, I mean, he affected me and so many thousands of people around the world with that message of hope. And uh, yeah, it's always stayed with me now at 52 years old. It's interesting. You know, he was, he was a very, very inspirational person. And what he went through is almost in a sense what you went through and, to, and, and what you're showing to the world. So I appreciate that answer. I watched in a video that where you were a very bold kid growing up, you're almost like a daredevil. <laughs> is that bold and daredevil still inside of you and pushing you to go even further? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I was a daredevil, although I had fear. So here's the, the weird thing is that like, you know, sometimes people go, oh, blind guy climbed Everest, kayak the Grand Canyon, like he has no fear. <laughs> and that's not true. I'm very fearful. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a scaredy cat. I don't even see myself as a risk taker or an adrenaline junkie. I see myself being very methodical, very careful, very strategic. I build really good teams around myself for safety and, and build a lot of systems and strategies and tools and um, just kind of go through the process and really, really get prepared. So I, I always feel like I have some redundancy. I have some safety backup. When I was a kid though, yeah, even though I was scared, I was always the first one jumping off the cliff into the river. I'd point my cane and I'd go right there and they go, no, 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 to the right. And I'd be like there and they go, no, left, left, right there. And I, you know, I'd be the first one to jump or, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be riding like a motorcycle with, you know, barely like a tiny bit of sight in my right eye, you know, just pushing the envelope because as a kid, you just don't know, you don't, you don't know how adventure is going to manifest in your life. My brother told me that, that blind people wrestled. And so I got really excited about that. And he knew the captains of the team. And I remember tapping my cane up the hallway towards that stinky wrestling room and joining the wrestling team. And uh, those are, that was my first team. That was my family. And it was really cool because they embraced me and they treated me like every other kid. They other, in fact, the first day of practice, all the freshmen line up skinny little dweebs with like pimple faces and all grease balls. And we all lined up and the, and there's this, I think he was a sophomore at the time, Paul, he was a state captain. I mean, state champion. And so he would drag all the freshmen out and just annihilate them. I think it was like designed to humiliate us all <laughs> just to set up <laughs> things the right way. And man, he took all the freshmen out and just pinned them so fast and pulled me out. I was up on my head. I was on my knees. I was on my stomach. And finally I pinned me and uh, I got out of the line and I thought, okay, I, I stink for sure, but I stink four <laughs> seconds better than the guy behind me. So I was pretty psyched to join that team. And then I got a rock climb, a, a, a letter in Braille of a group taking blind kids rock climbing and doing recreational things. And uh, I said yes to that too. And then um, my mom passed away, sadly, when I was uh, 16 in a car accident. But uh, she'd always wanted me to get a guide dog. So 
I signed up and was the first, uh, the youngest person in, in Connecticut history to get a guide dog. And so I guess even though despite my fears and my frustrations, my frustrations, my anxieties, I said yes, because I still had hope and I wanted to see what existed beyond that brick wall. You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned about blind wrestling. What we I was a wrestler in high school, and what we used to do is um, when we paired up with our partner or who we were wrestling against at practice, our coach would turn the lights off, and we'd have to wrestle with our eyes closed just to get the feeling and the so move. smart, right? Yeah, because it it's very tactile. It is very tactile, and, and you don't need sight when wrestling. You, you know, your friend was very correct. So it's interesting that we did that back in the 90s, turning the lights out and wrestling blind. And it really helped a lot of us because we became, we became conference champions. So I applaud you to that. And I applaud you to um, what your friend said. You had mentioned fear. What is your greatest fear? Well, you know, like when I started kayaking, obviously there's the danger of slamming into a rock, hurting yourself mm -hmm. really bad, flipping over, ble drowning. Those are physical things that you're fearful of. And of course, that's very objective to, I mean, it makes sense to be fair, scared of that stuff and all the ways and, you know, things are coming up at me and I can't see of any of them coming. So, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. It's very involved, mm -hmm. but I think what honestly and kayaking specifically, and I always try to be honest, what scared me even as much as that physical fear was the fact that like, hey, what if I wasn't as good at this as I wished I was? Like, you know, I had crushed it in the climbing world. And what if in kayaking, I just, I couldn't repeat that success. What if I let my whole team down? What if I didn't react in the, in the best way, in the optimal way, and I let everyone down and now I'm dragging all my team into this rescue on a very dangerous river. So I think sometimes like, you know, our definition of ourself can get in the way because I wanted to be a hero in my own mind. And I thought, I kept thinking, what if I'm not the guy I want to be? And mm. I think that in a weird way creates like all this layer of, of doubt and, uh, and worry when really for me, what kayaking was, was trying to go into the river and understand the landscape of the river, the, the riverscape. And trying to let go of all those layers and just be there with the river, you know, responding and reacting in a really like beautiful, authentic way. It took a long time to reach that state for me with all, all those layers of fear, the physical fear and the fears of my own, you know, shortfalls. I've read a lot about blind people and, and it seems that they rely on like a regular pattern, but with all you do, climbing, kayaking, consistency is limited. How do you manage <laughs> a sense of consistency in what you're attempting to do? Uh, it's, uh, it's the consistency of inconsistency. <laughs> That's true. It is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you reach up for the climbing hold and I'm scanning my hand across the face and I'm, trying to find that hold. And if it's not in my range though, I have to like really high step and feel, 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 you know, and I only have a limited amount of time before I'm going to lose strength in my forearms and I'm going to fall. So I have to find something to work within the amount of time that I have to hang on to. In kayaking, same thing. There were never any real consistency, but yeah, rapids had consistency in terms of like their makeup. Mm -hmm. You know, because they all had like a line 
And Harlan Tanny would tell me the line. We're going to angle in on the right. We're going to ride this eddy fence and then we're going to hit these boils and then you're going to hit the V wave and you're going to just, you know, ideally you're going to angle your boat left and you're going to hit that wave. And then you're going to square up against the big kahuna waves. So he'd map out what the rapid was going to be like. And then I would, you know, then try to destroy it. <laughs> I, I never, you know, in kayaking, you never quite get the perfect line every now and then you do, but a lot of times you're just getting knocked offline because the river just has a way of bouncing you off line. And then you're in places you don't want to be. And now, now it's a totally new situation that you just have to, you just have to react and respond very quickly. And as I said, you know, your own fear just becomes a layer Mm. Uh, that gets in the way of you and your performance. So you have to be aggressive. You got to lean into it no matter what's going on around you. So when you're out there, walk me through the process, what you're thinking, concentrating on as you're doing, and how, how do you apply that to each goal that you're chasing? Well, when you start these processes, whether it's to climb a big mountain or kayak a river or whatever it may be, I feel like at a macro level, the process is the same. You know, there's like kind of the reason why you're there and our no barriers vernacular, we, we call it vision, you know, just trying to look inside and build your values and say, why am I here? Are they strong enough to really propel me and motivate me when things get really hard? You know, there's the pioneering stage that I sometimes talk about, which is like all questions and no answers. Now you got to go through the process. You got to sort of engineer your way forward to kind of learn the landscape and how you're going to kind of innovate your way through all these different things. You know, like in kayaking for me, it was like, okay, how's my guide going to give me instructions? You know, when communication has to be incredibly precise, how am I going to hear him in the rage of those rapids when Mm -hmm. it's so loud, you can't hear anything. And so we had to develop this high tech radio system that communicated flawlessly waterproof in real time. So just like a lot of things in that pioneering stage, Anyway, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that when you look at these processes like a map and you say, okay, what are the elements that you're going to experience along the way where you go, okay, here I am right now. I think it helps you to move through that experience with more confidence. So I think just understanding what the map looks like is really important. That's really interesting. The way that you're navigating through the systems like that and the way everything is developing and changing the tech and and along that, is it is it tech now advancing as you're getting more and more challenges? Yeah, the tech is amazing for blind people. I mean, forget like for blind adventures, but just for everyday life for a blind person, you have iPhones that talk and Android phones that talk, and you can interact in a really cool way. I have I, I interact with my PC, but the keyboard talks to me and will tell me what's on the screen. I have a really cool company called. Ira that I have a subscription to. And so like I can call an agent any time of day. They can help me match my clothes. They can help me do online banking. They can help me find the nearest coffee shop if I'm lost. Wow. It's like a personal assistant for the blind and they see out of the phone, they see out of the camera. So they can help you navigate and they can see you on GPS and they can have access to your computer and your iPhone so that they can help you navigate in an accessible environment. So there's amazing stuff. There is a device I've been a guinea pig for called the Brainport. Mm. This is pretty mind-boggling. It's um 
it's based on neuroplasticity, the idea that like when something stops working biologically, that the brain is so nimble, it can usually create new pathways. And so if your eyes don't work and you're not getting visual information into your brain, well, what do you do? You find a new portal into the brain because sight seeing is inside the brain. It's not the eyes. The eyes are the camera. The brain is the software that really sees or hears or smells, right? So it's a camera that I wear and it takes a video image that translates through a, a software system and a little computer I hold in my hand. And then it translates to a tactile image. Maybe it's got 500 little vibrating pixels that I feel with my tongue. And I'm feeling whatever the camera's seeing, I'm feeling the shape on my tongue. Wow. And then because I could see, my brain reinterprets what I'm feeling into visual acuity, into like a visual image. And so like my brain's lighting up with like what I remember seeing as a kid because this camera is projecting a tactile image on my tongue. So I've used it to play games with my kids. Like I can play card games and rock, paper, scissors. I taught my son how to read because I could read the cue cards and tell him whether he was reading them correctly or not. So yeah, it was really, really cool. It's been cool to, um, and I've even climbed with it. You know, it's really cool because like in a rock gym, especially I can look up and I can see these little vibrating holds like out of my reach and I can reach up and I, and I have hand to tongue coordination. <laughs> I don't know. So that came out weird, but you get the point. I get the point. That's ama- that is amazing. That truly is amazing. Yeah. Wow. So most of us, including myself, first heard about when you climbed Mount Everest. You, can you still not quite believe that you accomplished that? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's an out-of-body experience, right? Because you're like, I'm not that guy. Yeah. I'm not tough enough. I get cold, like, <laughs> you know, walking outside in a t-shirt when it's 50 degrees, you know? I'm a wimp. But somehow I've been able to rise to the occasion. You know, I remember my first big mountain, Denali, the tallest mountain in North America. And, you know, I had wrestled. So I knew like suffering and bleeding. And I did this 19 day to the summit climb and another two days down. So 21 days in all. And I remember coming down and, and sitting in the igloo that we had built up there. And half of me thought, Eric, you know, this is insane what you're doing with your life, that you are not tough enough. You are not resilient enough. This is not what a blind person should be doing. <laughs> and then the other side of me was like, God, I want to do this forever. How do I do this forever? So there's always this internal conflict. I don't think, I don't know. I mean, the blind guy I kayaked the Grand Canyon with, Lonnie Bedwell, mm-hmm. people can check out our film, The Way to Water, which is uh, on Amazon Prime. It's amazing. But I mean, Lonnie didn't have fear, but like I did. I, I, I've always had fear. I've always had doubt. And uh, I, I guess I'm a, uh, I'm a rallier. And somehow I figure out a way to rally and stick with the process and do things that are bigger than me. You know, like I feel sometimes like a Walter Mitty, you know, that little guy in the short story who was always dreaming about being a submarine captain or aviator. Yeah. I feel like that guy, like that's often I do say that that couldn't have been me that did that. <laughs> And what's interesting is that 90% of the people who try to climb don't make it and some even die. Yeah. What, what mental work did you do to prepare for the Mount Everest climb? Well, one, I started rock climbing at 16, as I mentioned. So I'd been climbing half my life when I climbed Everest. Mm-hmm. 
And there were a lot of people that said, I'd go up there and die and kill everyone, kill the team, you know, draw everyone into a rescue. Um, but the people I climbed with, like I remember climbing the north face of Mount Baker with this friend of mine. And we had this massive 24-hour day, just like inching around giant crevasses and climbing really steep rock and ice and getting to the summit and getting all the way down. And he said, he turned to me at the end of that climb. He said, dude, those people that are doubting you, they're just judging you on blindness. They don't know anything about you. Mm. They're judging you on what they think blind people can do it and can't do. And, and their own fears of if they got, it went blind, he goes, I know you. And I think you're more qualified than 90% of the people that go to Mount Everest. You should do it. <laughs> and I mean, that was a huge confidence booster. Like when a friend looks you in the eye and says this to you, so, uh, yeah, I trained for two years specifically. I went to Mount Vincent, climbed the tallest peak in Antarctica. I climbed Aconcagua. I climbed Denali. I climbed El Capitan. I was charging hard. And, you know, like I would run up the tallest stairs in the tallest building in Denver. And I would like put a pack on. I would charge up the stairs for hours. And like I would just be on the verge of passing out and puking. And that's when I realized, okay, now I'm getting a good workout because this is the way I'm going to feel on Everest. Wow, that is a great workout. Did you run into any trouble on Mount Everest? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, you're going to run into trouble on a huge mountain. The hardest part for me was the Kumbu Icefall. It's the riskiest part of the mountain for sure. And it's right above base camp. And you might be thinking, well, why would it be? Wouldn't it be higher up the mountain? Yes, for sure. But the icefall is really volatile. Mm. imagine a glacier that's like over time sliding down the mountain and it reaches a cliff and it gets kind of viced between two rocks and it drops off a cliff and it is collapsing and tumbling exploding down the mountain like a river of ice you got to think of ice like river like a river like water so the bottom is plasticine it's this this compressed ice that's almost like plastic and then the top is obviously brittle and it's cracking and exploding and tumbling and, cr- and collapsing. And it's a blind person's worst nightmare. Mm. Two and a half thousand feet of jumbled up boulders of rice. You're walking on these boulders, bouncing from boulder to boulder. They're rolling and shifting under your feet. There's thousands of foot drop-offs. There's crevasses that are the, you know, the, the snow bridge is the width of your boot. There's just, it, it was so volatile, the Kumbu Icefall. And we had to cross through that 10 times. Wow. First time I was so crushed because every step was so hard. Every step could kill you. It wasn't just taking a step. Every step was, you know, at a different angle and a different, you know, just zigging and zagging and, and so much danger and potential. Uh, it took me 13 hours and I just gutted my way through. And I felt very much like I was going to pass out when I got to camp one at 20,000 feet. And my team said, hey, man, if he can't get through the ice fall in less than 13 hours, I mean, like, we're done. And I wasn't asleep. I was listening to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a down moment for sure, because I thought, oh, God, this expedition's over, probably, because I don't know how I'm going to get through the ice fall again. And then uh, you get stronger and you learn and you get little tricks Mm -hmm. for speeding up and efficiency and communication and on and on and on and all those systems and strategies that I was thinking of, you know, that I've been talking about. And uh, my last time up the Kumbu Icefall, I broke five hours. Wow. What was the first thing you remembered when you got to the top of Mount Everest? Huh. Ha- it's, it's again, this, this 
half and half thing because half of you is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. That out of body experience, like this is crazy. Like I'm here. This is the thing I've been working for for so long, and I'm here. I'm on this little island of in the sky at twenty nine thousand feet with my team. And then the other half of you is like, holy crap, I got to get down this thing. Mm. So you never really let your guard down, even though you're crying and you're hugging and you're holding the flag. And then the Sherpas are all screaming, get down the mountain. The storms are coming. You got to get down, down, down. Let's go. You're, this isn't the real summit. The real summit is getting down alive. Mm. And 90% of accidents happen on the way down. Oh, wow. So I remember just going down the mountain, thinking about my kids and thinking about my family and saying, no mistakes. I mean, you don't have to be a great athlete. Just do not make a mistake right here. This is a no mistake zone. It's interesting that more, as you said, more accidents happen as you go down the mountain than as opposed to going up. You would think the reverse. Yeah. But if you think about it, when you fall on the way up, you're facing the slope. So you fall into the mountain. Got it. When you're going down the mountain, you fall down the mountain, you tumble, you somersault down the mountain. And in a lot of times you're tired. And so you catch a crampon, which are the points on your feet mm-hmm. that spike into the snow. So you catch that against your pants, or maybe there's a strap hanging down from your pack that catches your foot. And next thing you know, you're tumbling down the mountain hundreds of feet and you're, you know, bad, bad stuff. So that's why you learn to self-arrest, which is you fall, but you make sure you do not fall forward. You fall back on your butt, you roll over, slam your ice axe into the snow and hammer that thing in as hard as possible before you build up any momentum or speed as you fall. Wow. Now, some people could say that you can, you give up your independence when you lose your sight. However, no man or woman could have climbed Mount Everest just like yourself without a team. How does a team work for you or any climber? My teams have been the greatest gift of blindness because I think if you can see, you know, you got this mythology that you can do it all alone. And as a blind person, I had to give that up. I had to realize that I wasn't going to climb Everest alone. I wasn't going to kayak the Grand Canyon alone. It was going to be about connecting with the right people, putting our lives in each other's hands. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, that sense of interdependence has been the most beautiful part of my adventures. You know, people trusting me, me trusting them being a part of a rope team where you're actually moving up the glacier all on the same rope. That's been really beautiful for me to have that connection with other human beings. Harlan Tanny, who guided me down the Grand Canyon. I mean, imagine yourself kayaking a crazy rapid and you're trying to guide your blind friend as well down the rapid. Mm. It's like this little remote control blind guy who's not always doing what you're wanting him to do. (laughs) (laughs) And And so that connection becomes just so unbelievably powerful for me. So, no, I think the teams I've been able to build around me have been a blessing. Speaking of teams building around you, you got married on Kilimanjaro. What was that like? Yeah, we had our wedding ceremony at 13,000 feet on the Shira Plateau. And then uh, (laughs) we summited the next day. That was our honeymoon. (laughs) Yeah, so my wife said it was uh, an endless nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah so yeah so that was quite an adventuresome uh wedding i'd say yeah one of the best i've heard though yeah eric i have an an interesting question for you how would you define beauty i mean you've experienced so much and now you're a father and husband but you can't see them 
is beauty to you a feeling? Yeah, it is a feeling. Um, but it's also, I, I mean, you get beauty from your other senses. You know, mm-hmm. I remember climbing a huge ice face in Canada and I was um, belaying somebody up, meaning like they were, I was pulling the rope out for them as they led up the ice and it was ver- dead vertical ice. And I took my glove off and I ran my hand down the ice and, and the ice is formed by water dripping and dripping and dripping. It creates these giant sort of columns. They almost feel like ice tree trunks coming down the mountain. And I remember just feeling all the way down as far as I could down this beautiful trunk of ice, just dropping into space and thinking, my gosh, that is so beautiful. It's as smooth and clear as like a, a window in your bedroom on a winter's day. Or I've listened to ice, you know, stalactites break and fall onto a frozen lake. And it just sounds like a beautiful, like all the notes of a xylophone. Mm. Or I've been in skiing and you ski into a little clearing and the sound of the wind, you hear it like absorbing into the snow. And it's this beautiful muffled sound of space and sound and vibration absorbing into the earth. Or being high up on a mountain and listening to the vibrations of sound move out infinitely through space like you've been swallowed by sky. Wow. I mean, so there's tremendous beauty that's non-visual that, that's out there. I do remember, though, watching my son, Arjun, on the brain port that we talked about. And he was telling me a little joke, uh, like a little knock-knock joke that he learned in school. And I was watching his lips move. I was actually feeling it on my tongue, but I mean, I'm saying seeing, quote unquote, seeing his lips move. And then his, when he told the punchline, his big smile, and I could see like this sort of wavering sensation of his mouth and his face, like kind of lifting up. And mm. it, I, I had forgotten visually how beautiful it was to see a face and a smile kind of engulf the entire face and the eyes like squint up and sort of I almost twinkle. And so I, I do miss faces quite a bit because I know they are beautiful. You're going to tear me up with that answer. That was a beautiful answer. I ask all my guests this question about morning rituals. Every day I wake up at 5 a.m. I'm one of those 5 a.m. people that wake <laughs> up to do, I do an incantation. I say, by December 31st, I, Jay Carter, will accomplish this by doing this. Then I work out, journal, read, and I take an ice bath. Do you have any morning rituals or rituals that you subscribe to on a daily basis to get yourself mentally ready? You know... I do meditate and things like that, but I really just kind of wake up and hammer, to be honest. I, I just fill my day full of like really good things. And uh, I'm up biking, climbing, lifting weights with my friends, skiing up a mountain, you know, like uh, they call it skinning, backcountry skiing, mm-hmm. going on a run. You know, I have a ton of friends and we're always scheming and like creating new adventures. And then, you know, I host my own podcast through No Barriers and I work with a lot of our programs with a lot of the injured vets and a lot of the uh, different folks with physical challenge and folks in wheelchairs. So I'm out on expeditions with those folks. I have a ton of friends that I've connected with through the No Barriers experience, helping them with their No Barriers pledges. So my days are just filled with such good, positive stuff that I'm not always like, sort of conscious about like my rituals, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just packing my day full of meaning and purpose and connection. 
And so if anything, I, I, I pack my schedule too much, you know, like hmm. I just spoke to a group yesterday in Orlando, a couple thousand people. And I sprinted home this morning and I met my friend at the rock gym and climbed for two and a half hours. Now I speak to you. And then I host my own podcast with this really cool guy in a couple hours. And then I take my daughter out to dinner. And I think that's an awesome day. But yeah, it's not really necessarily rituals because it's every day for me is different. Mm, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. So with all that you've accomplished, how would you define what it is you're seeking? You know, I've been asked that question before. In fact, you know, you, we talked about uh, The Weight of Water. Michael Brown, the director, who's a good friend of mine, just kept asking me that. Why, why, why? What are you seeking? Why, why, why? And it just drove me crazy because I'm like, who knows themselves this well? Nobody knows the why of why they do the things they do. But through that process, I did really kind of dive beneath the surface. You know, like when you're kayaking a river, you are getting pounded on the surface. And it's very easy to think everything's happening on the surface. But really, all that energy is being created by, from the very depths of the river, like the bottom of the river, the currents dropping off of cliffs and going through sieves and, and squeezing between things. and rising up and you're being affected by all that energy deep beneath the surface. And so I think our, our lives are like that. So the why of me diving into the surface, the best answer I can give is that when I went blind, sitting in the cafeteria by myself, my friends kind of had abandoned me for a little while. I'm not being a sad sack, but just like they didn't know how to deal with me. They didn't know they didn't want to be uncool with this blanket. So I, I kind of lost some friends and I was sitting there by myself. And that was the worst feeling in the world to be sitting in the cafeteria by yourself, Donnie Dark. I'm shoved to the sidelines. I'm camping out. I'm stagnating. I don't know how to see through the brick wall. I'm in this prison. Yes, the world put me there. Blindness put me there. But in a way, I'm putting myself in this prison because of my own frustration and anger and I had such FOMO disease, mm. fear of missing out. I wanted to be a part of the food fights. I wanted to be a part of great teams. And I wanted to shatter my expectations of what I might be able to do with my life. I, I didn't want to be imprisoned by my own fears. And so I think the answer is that I sort of translated my anxieties and frustrations and reservations and doubt and hopelessness and uncertainty into my deepest yearnings. Mm. You know, and I said yes, because I wanted out of that prison so bad. So what legacy do you want to leave behind? What I'd like to leave behind, I don't really care about my legacy, me, my life, Eric, but I am bringing, leaving behind this movement that I helped build called No Barriers. And No Barriers is a movement and an organization involving thousands and thousands of people now. And they're folks with physical challenges wheelchairs, blind people, deaf people, people who have had all kinds of physical challenges, amputees, but also injured veterans, also kids in the foster care system, first-generation Americans, kids who have experienced emotional challenges, you know, anxiety, fear, doubt, you know, all that kind of natural stuff. And we build programs to help those people break through barriers, to tap into what they have inside and figure out how they're going to elevate their lives in the world. They're not going to be on the sidelines. And so we bring together this really incredible community of people, of problem solvers and innovators that are helping people to understand what that no barriers life looks like. And it's been incredible work. We just had our big celebration. We call our summit 
And obviously with the pandemic, we only could have a couple hundred people live with us. But uh, virtually around the world, we had 50 countries represented, 50 states. We had over 7 million views, wow. uh, people checking out our programs from around the world. So for me, I hope that will be my legacy. Our tagline or our motto is what's within us is stronger than what's in our way. That's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Eric, where can people find you on social media? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on all the stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they can check out my films. I made a bunch of really beautiful films and written three books. And, um, and uh, we just made a beautiful film about Melissa Simpson, one of our No Barriers uh, pioneers. She's uh, got cerebral palsy. We helped her climb a mountain. That's called From My Window. It's on Vimeo. So yeah, I mean, you go on the web, you'll see a lot of uh, Eric Weimer till you're sick of me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're doing some amazing work and you truly are an amazing inspiration to us all. Awesome. Sweet. That is going to be it for today's episode. I want to say thank you so much to Eric for joining us today and taking his time to tell us a little bit about his journey. It was both powerful and inspirational, and I really enjoyed hearing firsthand about Eric's experiences on and off the mountain. If you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to give us a follow, leave a review, and listen out for new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jay Cardiello, and this has been Stories of Strength, personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength presented by MuscleTech.